0: On air, online, on digital, digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, a new benchmark price paid for a Tasmanian farm.
2: Prime properties are hitting the market don't seem to be on the market very long unless there's something about them that doesn't appeal to buyers. But most that are coming on are selling quite rapidly, especially the ones that are very well developed.
1: And the good and the bad when looking at weather conditions for one Tasmanian sheep farmer.
3: A lot of grass, more grass than what our animals can consume. So from that perspective, it's been been easy. However, (laughs) the lack of hot, dry periods in summer have caused some massive animal health issues with the sheep.
1: Yeah, we'll take you to a Midland sheep farm to see what's happening, especially with the weather. And in just a moment, the jaw-dropping price paid for a well-known North Tasmanian farm. G'day, Tony with you on this Thursday. Hope the weather's been kind to you today and you're getting some sunshine. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage. And we'll take you to a multi-breed ram sale to see how things are going with the prices and also demand. Plus, a vet looks at the issue of foot rot in sheep as the wet conditions take their toll. We'll take your thoughts, too, on any issue via the text line 0438 922 936, that number 0438 922 936. You might want to comment in our first story about the sale of a Tasmanian farm. And the historic North Tasmanian property, Vaucluse, has been sold above the indicative price of $110 million when it was placed on the market earlier this year. The property at Canara was owned by Proterra Investments, an international investment company with an office in Sydney, and was last sold for $20 million. But since then, two nearby farms have been added to the portfolio, and the company which managed the sale process – LAWD says it received more than 200 genuine inquiries from around the world, including a number from Tasmania. A confidentiality clause in the sale does not allow the final price to be revealed, or the purchaser, but the sale price is believed to be above the indicative price of $110 million, putting the property well above previous record prices paid for a farm in the state. Financial consultant to the rural sector, Greg Bott, says he's never seen as much activity in the rural land sector and describes it as a golden age. He says the indicative price for Vaucluse did not surprise him.
2: Because it's a very well-developed property and there's been a lot of sales of other properties around the state that reflected that same sort of value, if not higher. But the whole state is just so bubbling at the moment. There's a lot of uh, properties turning over and a lot of prices, good prices being achieved.
1: Does it matter that the new owner of Vaucluse uh, looks like it's an overseas company? We're not too sure, but that's what the word is on the ground.
2: Does it matter? Um, Look, uh, that's a big question, but there's a lot of properties in the state have been purchased by overseas interests from all over the world and from every corner. The percentage is certainly growing. You can't do a lot about it. It's a democracy. You know, a farmer wants to sell, he'll sell. And um, uh, that's just the way it is. But we we have seen a dynamic change in land ownership in Tassie over the last probably three to five years especially.
1: Is it becoming a situation where cashing in on the value of a farm may be better uh, than passing the farm onto the family, the normal succession plan? Is that a situation
4: now?
2: No, no, well, that's an interesting question too because I've had quite a few people come to me and say, look, we've been offered this sort of money for our property. And and the stock standard thing you've got to kind of say is, okay, that's all great, but what are you going to do with the money when you get it like you know nothing about shares you know nothing about residential property Putting in the bank even in the moment you'll only earn three or four percent in your case you'll probably go turn around and go and buy another farm and then you've got the challenge of finding one finding one at the right price finding one that's developed to the level of yours so it's a challenge but there's still a lot of people getting older and deciding they are going to pass it on, and those people are living quite well.
1: Which brings me to the next question. What sort of message does a sale like this send to anyone wanting to purchase a farm in Tasmania, especially the young people starting out?
2: It's always been tough for young people, and it's tougher today than it ever was. It sends a message that yeah, land ownership in the future is going to be for wealthier farmers, um, even to the point where today, if you had a million dollars you'd struggle to find a commercially viable farm that even if you if you leveraged up with debt, um, $2 million today will not buy you much.
1: And Greg, you've been involved in this industry for a long time. You're, you're former head of Robobank in Tasmania, so you've seen quite a few transactions over the years. Is this the golden era for farm ownership in the state?
2: Absolutely. So I've never seen it this buoyant. Um, the, I, do, I do a lot of work with a lot of banks and everyone is flat out um, and, and have slowed down considerably because there's just so much activity. It's, it's unprecedented. I've never seen it before. I've been involved with more lending activity in the last three years than I ever did at the bank.
1: I suppose a good thing for farmers too is that they can use the equity and the value in their land now to uh, maybe purchase that new equipment that they've desperately needed.
2: And look, there's a lot of things. You know, it's really ironic because there were some farmers who five years ago couldn't buy the farm next door because they didn't have enough equity and then suddenly their farm's gone up in value and now they've got the equity to be able to buy the farm next door and the farm next door is one and a half to two times more than what it was five years ago. So... We're, we have got uh, quite a, a change and there's, there's a new saying in the banking world, 10 is the new three, which is people that used to owe 3 million now owe 10.
1: Will we see more properties reach these stellar sale prices or do you think it'll level off?
2: You would think it would level off, but it's not at this point in time showing too much sign of leveling off or slowing down. Prime properties are hitting the market don't seem to be on the market very long unless there's something about them that doesn't appeal to buyers. But most that are coming on are selling quite rapidly, especially the ones that are very well developed.
1: And what does it say about agriculture in Tasmania for investment companies, financial institutions to be purchasing uh, properties like Vaucluse?
2: It says that Tasmania is the place to go. It, it's a fantastic thing for Tasmania because it's it's sending a message that in a world where we're we're experiencing a lot of climate change, whether you believe it or not, Tasmania is as safe as it can be. Look at Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland, these floods are just annihilating millions, if not billions, of dollars worth of crops. And Tassie's been hurt, but it hasn't been crippled. And it's the place to be. It's just so much more resilient to many things. So, And I think investors are starting to understand that. So we're seeing a lot more money flow down here.
1: And are you giving advice to clients, uh, farm clients, to just be wary, uh, don't get in too deep?
2: You've got to always pace people to what their what their commitments are, what their abilities are. So um, it was particularly difficult 12 months ago when interest rates were really, really low and some people were getting interest rates that were in the very low ones. It was never going to be sustainable, but it, um, you can't see the future. And look, 99 out of 100 economists get it wrong. So you really got this challenge of um, making sure people understand that the future may not be quite as bright because you know most commodity prices are where they've never been. That coupled with land pages going up, it's a golden era, but if you look at the history, history tells you it's cyclical and it will go back down. But we've been saying that for three years and it hasn't happened yet.
1: That's Greg Botts, a financial consultant to the rural sector in Tasmania, commenting on the current hot market for rural properties in the state and the sale of the property vaucluse at Canara in the state's north for a price above the indicative number of $110 million. A lot of money. Well, foot and mouth disease in Indonesia was officially declared six months ago after 14 goats which had been smuggled in from Thailand to Malaysia which then brought the disease into the country. The island nation, which has 65 million cloved-footed animals and an average herded size of two to three head per farmer, is continuing to roll out vaccinations against FMD. But while Indonesia claims it's making headway and becoming FMD-free, President of the Queensland Live Exporters Association, Greg Pankhurst, explained to graziers in Mount Isa yesterday he sees the situation differently.
5: As of today, about 5.8 million vaccines have been distributed throughout Indonesia, I uh, am mainly into the cattle population, so we, we shouldn't forget that, that uh, buffalo and pigs and goats also will contract foot and mouth disease. So, as I said earlier, 65 million animals need to be vaccinated. Uh, we're about 6 million at the moment, so it, it's time-consuming, but it has been rolled out.
6: And just to provide context for Australian graziers and farmers, what has that rollout been like? Have, has it been smooth?
5: So, initially, uh, there was a lot of confusion in Indonesia, very difficult to um, acquire vaccines. there need to be a number of legislations uh, approved to bring in uh, FMD vaccine which, which hadn't been brought into Indonesia for some 40 years so it was slow uh, so between May and uh, end of June was when we first saw our first vaccines roll out to a, a very limited few um, but it, it has been slow uh, but I believe the government and in with, especially with the uh, national disaster um, body overseeing it at the moment they're doing a reasonable job
6: for graziers in Australia, what are we looking at in terms of export numbers? Are we looking to get back to normal levels?
5: Yeah, let's see, I, th- I think it will get back to normal levels, but it's not so much foot and mouth disease now. All animals which um, enter Indonesia now immediately on discharge in, in the feedlot they've been received in Indonesia will receive a foot and mouth disease and, a, and in most cases a lumpy skin disease vaccine as well. Because they're naive as they come into the country, um, so this year it's been quiet. But a lot of that quiet uh, exporting is due to the the price. So we've uh, we've seen record prices again out of the north, uh, and you know, Indonesia's probably just not in a position to be paying those prices.
6: If FMD was to arrive in in Australia, could we still see an export market? Uh,
5: it's it's certainly not confirmed, but it's probable and it's a possible. But it would it mean um, a lot of negotiation with the importing countries. So you'd have to do a lot of negotiation in regard to protocols. But a, a possible scenario, yes, is we could see cattle be start to be exported and it would save the north.
6: Uh, lumpy skin disease seems to be the lesser talked about cousin to FMD. That, you know, arrived in Singapore in March 2022. It's now in Indonesia. It's reached Java, I believe. Is that a more significant threat to the Australian agricultural industry than FMD?
5: Yeah, personally, I have more concern about LSD because it is a, a vector-borne. So it's uh, it's going to blow in on insects. Um, and again, it's... It, it's difficult to transmit. It's better that animals are transmitted together and animals are, are uh, in close proximity and biting animals jump from one animal to another. But it, it is the big concern because there's no matter how much biosecurity we put in place, if, uh, if insects are blown down from Indonesia, and, and as you said, LSD is now in Java, so it's moved through Sumatra into Java we haven't seen it go into Bali or into East Sumatra at the moment, but uh, the way it's travelled through Sumatra, it's travelled down through Sumatra in about six months. So you could uh, you could say it's probably going to move on to uh, East Sumatra, East uh, East Indonesia, probably within the next three to six months, I suppose. Uh,
6: much like FMD and understanding that export scenario, what impact would LSD have?
5: uh so initially lsd was there before fmd so initially there was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction and don't import animals um and the 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 vaccine for lsd has probably been a little bit slower to roll out because uh two months after lsd was declared we got fmd in indonesia and so the government took a lot more they wanted to do a lot more on fmd so they set LSD aside uh, and there's been very little done on LSD. Now LSD has become a little bit more of a, an issue and they realise that it's going to take over the herd as well and it is, it's crippling to, to cattle and again it's only cattle and, and buffalo that will be affected whereas FMD are, are, are the cross are all species but um, certainly it is, the government is taking, uh, taking heed of it now probably more than they were back in March.
1: Greg Pankhurst, President of the Queensland Life Exporters Association, speaking there with Lucy Cooper about the latest on foot and mouth disease in Indonesia and also that lumpy skin disease. Coming up, we'll go strawberry picking and a look at the largest potato packing facility in the Southern Hemisphere.
0: This week on Landline, we go mining for the crucial fertiliser, phosphate.
7: This is basically the old inland sea, millions and millions of years of uh, sediment-free runoff. The phosphorus is basically mixed up with clays from the inland sea.
0: And earning money for carbon captured in soil.
8: I'd like to know every kilo of beef that I've put on the animals, how much carbon we're putting back in the soil. That's
0: Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: We shall take you to a ram sale later in the program. But juicy ripe strawberries, there's nothing better. Perhaps you've got some ripening in your garden. The red fruit are ripening in the patch at Littlewood Farm near Richmond and it's been open to the public for some pick-your-own sessions. Sophie Johnston took reporter Fiona Breen around the patch to have a look at some of the fruit.
0: So we've got two different varieties that um, produce fruit and ripen at different stages, so that we have a cons- um, we've got constant fruit rather than everything coming at once and then nothing for a while. So um, obviously the early ones are, are, are up now, and particularly as we've had this little bit of warmth. Uh, yeah, one variety is producing a lot more than the other one at the moment, but then the other one's heavily in flower at the moment and that will fill the gap for when the other one slows down. So how long do you normally have ripe strawberries for here? Depends on Mother Nature. Uh, uh, it's, we can normally go right through to Christmas and then normally there's a bit of a lull over Christmas, New Year's, which is a great time to have a bit of a break. Um, but we, other times we can just go all the way through, right through to I think we went till May last year. Well, how difficult has it been with the weather, with the rain, with the cold? I've got some pretty amazing staff members here that have been on top of everything and really organised, which makes things a lot easier. And um, the cold hasn't affected us too much. The wet weather um, didn't affect us too much because they're on raised, on raised beds. But we were looking to have a very early harvest of fruit, which was going to be great for the bank balance. But um, we had a few... 20 sort of um, degree days but then it dropped back down to 12 so the fruits got pretty confused and then we had about 60 to 80 mils of rain on top of that which with slow ripening turns into a bit of a disaster. So you've lost some and that would have hurt the bank balance? Yeah, yeah, we did lose a bit, uh, especially for a small business when you're sort of sitting there twiddling your thumbs wondering when you might be able to start picking Um, but I mean it's agriculture, it is what it is, it's all a bit of a gamble sometimes and we're in the hands of the gods and um but at the moment especially this last week and with opening days and the weather we've had it's just been absolutely stellar your model is to allow the public in to pick their own is that continuing and what's good about that Uh, Yep, we are a pick-your-own strawberry farm, and that's the way we would like to stay. Um, We don't want to get bigger and supply supermarkets or any of those large chains, Um, but when we have large flushings of fruit, we do supply a lot of restaurants and um, places, cafes around Hobart and surrounding areas. And are you finding demand from restaurants
9: is pretty high? Yes,
0: yeah. Um, we're at the stage where it's if you've been a past customer, you're at the top of the list, and then you sort of... um, go into a waiting list and, and um, we've got people trying to line up for that and wanting to be a part of it, but we don't like promising something we don't have either. All right, uh, Sophie Johnson formerly, Sophie Nichols,
9: you're part of a, a wider family group that also has sheep and other livestock. Are you
0: still helping out on uh, other parts of your family farm? Yeah, so the Strawberries is actually just a side business for my husband and I um, and then the, the two other family farms we've got is my full-time job and what's happening there you've got quite a few sheep uh, yes yeah, so we've got a property at richmond and then we also have a property at buckland um so we've got a all our merinos are based at buckland where that's our self-replacing flock and then at richmond we bring our culls and um just older generation merinos and put a south down ram over those and produce a fat lamb line which we put through our restaurant business as well
9: okay no rest for the wicked <laughs> <laughs>
0: so you've
9: got good fat lambs and some wool at the moment
0: Yeah, yeah. so uh, we sort of get to dip our fingers in a few different pies there, but um, we get to have the benefit of the wool prices with merino wool. We like to try and average our fleeces around the 16 to 17 micron mark and then at the Richmond um, property where we finish fat lambs under irrigation and things like that, and it's also our backup feed bank for Buckland as well. Yeah, we sort of finish around six to eight hundred lambs a year, and we put those through our lamb business that we've got. So that's working really, really well. Getting lamb into homes and restaurants that way as well. That's a boxed lamb business. Yeah, so we've got boxed lambs. We do halves, cut up, cryovac, and labelled. Um, they get to collect it from the farm. They get to meet the farmer, and then we also get to sell whole carcass and um, different cuts of lamb to restaurants around Hobart as well and we give the chefs the opportunity to come out and view the farm and view the animals in the paddocks and um, see it all from that angle as well.
9: And of course I spoke to your father uh, months ago about the potential
0: of irrigation so that might be something in the future that you'll look at as well. Uh, we've got a lot of our irrigation on the farm at Richmond. Um, <clears throat> we own some water rights off the Bluff River at Buckland, but that's more of just a, uh, we'll just hang on to those. We don't have any irrigation set up there, but down here the irrigation schemes are changing. Um, I do have a lot on, so at the moment I'm leaving that one up to my dad and he's keeping me <laughs> informed as to what's going on, where where I can um find out what I can
1: yeah, good old dad, Richmond farmer Sophie Johnston showing, uh, talking at least about the strawberries and the lamb that are all part of the family farming enterprise near Richmond. Well, South Australia is now home to the largest potato packing facility of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere. The $45 million packing shed and warehouse officially opened in the Mallee region of the state by Australia's biggest potato supplier, the Pie Group. Deputy General Manager, Renee Pye, told Cassie Huff a 15,000 square metre warehouse has doubled its production capacity from 22 tonne an hour to 45 tonnes an hour.
10: Yeah, so it's the largest facility of its kind because of the roof, so it's under one roof. We've also got some other big packers in South Australia, like you said before, one of the biggest states for growing and packing potatoes. So, yeah, if you're sort of visioning the process, um, we wash and pack about 300 tonne of potato a day across six days a week. So it goes through a washing process, like a rinse and a polish and a cool. Five times. Yeah. They get
11: washed five times. Yeah, I around learned.
10: about five times. So yeah, <laughs> there's lots of water and water going through the process all at the same time. And then they get sized at the end of the line and they go through a grading machine, which has a series of cameras that are taking pictures of every spud as it goes through. They're taking about 30 pictures per potato. And then that's sort of programmed onto a line to say pack a two kilo generic bag or a one kilo baby small bag and then that goes through the process being packed put into crates and then onto the palletizer
11: it's a lot of potatoes that are going through this system what sort of a year has it been for your farm here when it comes to potato production it has been very wet
10: yeah no it has been wetter than usual but it has been a good year for us so we've had a good growing year with the mild conditions and the wet conditions and we've been able to pack all the product that we've had in the ground and distribute it through to the supermarkets and the markets around Australia.
11: You you did have processing facilities on the Northern Adelaide Plains where you bought uh, some pro- some processing capacity there, but you've shifted a lot of that to Perilla, which is really, I mean, I had to say the middle of nowhere, could also be the centre <laughs> of everywhere, but uh, why did you decide to move that uh, processing capacity here to perilla it's definitely been called the middle of nowhere a few times (laughs) it's an awesome place out here there's great
10: communities so yeah essentially we do probably 95 to 90 percent of our production of potato growing out here and we were shipping up to 12 trailers of potatoes every day to virginia which didn't make sense that's about three hours on the road three and a half hours so it made a lot more sense to build our packing facility here and save on the mileage on the road and the emissions that we're putting out as well. And also the freshness and the quality of that product too. It's not traveling three hours on a 45 degree day because we do get those here in South Australia. And in terms of things that just made sense for us to build the packing facility here, there was really only
11: one marker that came up that was going to be difficult and that was getting labor. Absolutely. And you had to put in quite a lot of effort to attract workers here. What have you done?
10: Yeah, so sort of in hand with bringing people to the community, you need to build accommodation. So there also isn't a lot of accommodation in the Mallee region. So we have built 27 houses, family-styled houses, so three-bedroom, two-bathroom houses across both Lamaroo and Pinaroo. And that has been something that has attracted those families to move from Adelaide or Murray Bridge out to the Mallee region and then we've also been working with sort of community groups like Lamaru Forward in trying to get people introduced into the community and get involved in a few things that have been happening around the place. And what did you say you had about three four hundred people who who work for Pi Group? Yeah so we've got around 450 employees in total and we've probably got about
11: 250 here in the Mallee region. And you also got about 40, was it, odd people who moved across from Adelaide to Perilla to be a part of this. What was it, do you think, that attracted them to, to coming here beyond just the work? Um, I think
10: they were probably keen to stay with the same company that they had been with in the previous years. Hopefully we've shown that we're a great work, place to work for and that they enjoy working for us. And then I think some people were actually looking to come out to the country instead of being in the city, they were keen to... For some fresh air get involved in a more tight-knit community and have a nice time and raise their children out here. Have you had to bring in anyone from overseas? Uh, Yes so we have brought some people in from overseas a lot of laborers so we've become a part of the PLS workforce which is now called the Palm Scheme. Um, We got around 40 people across from Papua New Guinea who are living in sort of backpacker style accommodation and they've been working throughout the farm and in the packing sheds.
11: What is it that gives you confidence to build such a big facility here? It's a $45 million facility. You did get a $2 million grant from the state government's regional growth fund to, to get it all up and running. But you've put in a lot of investment. Your, your, your family, the pie Group, has put in a lot of investment themselves here. What is it that gives you the confidence to go forward, particularly given how high input costs are at the moment?
10: Yeah, so um, I think our staff, they're amazing. They are so excited about the facility that we've got and the future that we have got going forward. I think if you didn't have those sorts of people backing you in spending this money and having these ideas, then you would think a bit more reservely about what you're doing. And also like the region, what's happening in the community and how much is going on here as well in the Mallee region with some other big businesses in play. And then obviously with the help of the government, I think we probably would have not done it if we didn't have that help and
11: support from the government as well. But uh, there is a lot of demand I can imagine for potatoes. Uh, I know people (laughs) notice it if potatoes aren't there they're one of the the key vegetables that people do notice so uh, I'm sure there's uh, what sort of demand are you seeing from uh, the consumer as well?
10: Yeah no we're definitely seeing healthy demand from the consumer and it's potatoes are something that are always on the shelf like you said 12 months of the year they're there and You know, they're not super expensive either. A two-kilo bag at $7.50, that's going to last you a week. It's a great staple product that's on the shelf 24-7 and you can do 20,000 amazing dishes with it. They call them the humble spud, but they, they really are such a remarkable vegetable. Yeah, no, and they cover all cultures like anyone is using them if you look all over the world there's plenty of people eating spuds
1: don't have had idea but i could eat spuds every day of the week and different types of spuds too and different ways of cooking them just the greatest vegetable that's pie group deputy general manager renee pie speaking with cassie huff at their new 45 million dollar packing shed and warehouse where they can do 45 tons of potatoes an hour Still to come, the multi-breed ram sale, the very busy sheep farmer in the Midlands and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Michael Dalla
12: Fontana. Thank you, Tony. Australia's unemployment rate has fallen back to 3.4%, defying economist expectations of an increase from 35 to 3.6%. The Bureau of Statistics says about 32,000 jobs were added to the economy in October, leaving the jobless rate nearly a half-century low. The unemployment rate in Tasmania remains steady at 4.2%, in October. The union representing staff at the University of Tasmania has called off today's strike action after what it says is progress in negotiations. The enterprise agreement now includes a 13.5% rise over the three years and a reduction in casual employment contracts. Defence Force personnel and international flood specialists are being deployed across inland New South Wales as communities experience near-record flooding. And Prince William says he's supporting both England and Wales at the World Cup soccer tournament starting next week in Qatar. The declaration came during a visit to the Welsh Parliament when the Royal was put on the spot by the presiding officer. More news at one o'clock.
1: Time now to check the ill-important weather. Belinda House joins us from the Bureau. Hello, Belinda.
13: Uh, good afternoon.
1: It's a sort of a what-can-I-expect-next-day, isn't it?
13: Yeah, look, it's fairly oh, but mild conditions out there really it's cloudy right across the state and we are picking up some uh, very light showers about parts of the, the west south and the southeast they will push into the east and the northeast this afternoon and clear from the west but look only fairly light rainfall totals expected Uh, to the 24 hours to 9am this morning uh, 4mm at Warra was our highest with 3mm at Cape Bruni and Mount Reed. Since 9 o'clock this morning uh, it's fallen in the gauges around the west and south but uh, all less than a millimetre is what we've gauged. Now tomorrow similar similar in that there won't be a whole lot in the gauge we'll see some light showers about the southern and eastern coast during the morning uh, pushing across the north north and the northeast later in the morning or through the afternoon but by evening there'll probably only be showers about the northeast and even then they might be petering out altogether um, in the evening so just some light showers for tomorrow but look we will see winds they're southwesterly today they're going to turn around through the, the southeast to the northeast tomorrow freshening up about the northwest a little later in the day on Friday but look uh, Saturday is when we're going to see the, the rain come back into our state so perhaps just some light showers about the north during the morning but we're going to see those, it increase to rain about the northwest in the afternoon and extend right across the state by evening with uh, freshening northeasterly winds. So temperatures perhaps climbing a little bit on Saturday ahead of that rain coming in but rain extending statewide by the end of the day. Then on Sunday that rain will push off to the east and clear, clear away as it pushes off through the east but we will see showers uh, to follow right across the state with an increase in that shower activity about the north and the west in the the evening on Sunday. So winds are initially fresh northeast and northerly, but they're going to shift around to the west during the morning before turning northwesterly in the evening. Then on Monday, look, we've got another cold front to push through. So we're going to see statewide showers. So they will be more frequent about the west, the far south, and the Bass Strait Islands. Cold air bringing snow down to about the 600 metre mark in the afternoon and evening, and there's a chance of some seeing some hail with uh, showers during the day on Monday. So fresh and gusty. Northwesterly winds are going to shift colder west to southwesterly during the day on Monday. So uh, a mixed bag with uh, not too much in the gauge today, tomorrow, but rain coming Saturday and Sunday with colder uh, outbreak on Monday. Rainfall figures covering those three days: Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. You're looking at uh, 40 to 70 millimetres through the west, 15 to 35 millimetres elsewhere. Although the northeast high ground may pick up a little more.
1: A wonderful introduction as we get closer to summer. Fantastic.
13: It's trying.
1: (laughs) It's trying. It's very trying. Um, Mm. Warnings, what have we got?
13: Yeah, look, we've got a moderate flood warning for the Macquarie River and minor flood warnings for the Meander and the South Esk rivers and a generalised flood warning for the Cole River. Um, no coastal wind warnings today. Coastal overview, south to southerly winds at 10 to 20 knots. They'll turn around. The winds will turn west-northwesterly about the central north this afternoon. We're going to see winds 10 south to southeasterly at 5 to 15 knots in the west this evening. So the sea's generally one to two metres. The swell out there at present, observation of Mariah Island City, a bit over two metres coming in from the, the south at Cape Sorrel, sitting right on two metres coming in from the southwest. So, generally, uh, perhaps a rising trend slightly. The west and south expecting southwesterly swell, two to three metres. The north, the westerly swell below one metre. In the east, the, the south, the southeasterly, um, one to two metres, although more southwesterly offshore in the south.
4: Okay.
1: Did we do the wave rider? Yeah, I did. did. Two okay. metres. I was, I, was drift, <laughs> I was drifting off with the wave rider there. Okay, thank you, Belinda.
13: Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Belinda House from the Bureau with the latest information for you. Wake up, Tony. It's like one of the wiggles, isn't it? Uh, Maggie says on the uh, text line, democracy or not, it's criminal to be selling off the country. One day we will wake up and there will be nothing left. Um, Thank you for that, Maggie. And I think you also added something else on the text line. Another thing, leave the country in a better condition for our upcoming generations. What country? that's in uh, in light of the sale of Vaucluse for over $110 million in the uh, north of the state at Canara. Uh, one thing, Maggie, that the company that did own it, they actually purchased it for 20 mil, and they then purchased two other farms and joined them together, and then they apparently spent millions of dollars uh, you know, of, of infrastructure work uh, within the farms. We're trying to um, talk to the uh, representative from that particular company, but they did improve that farm, and uh, it must have been an improvement with uh, the price. Well, 20 million was the last sale. And then you add on the other two farms, I suppose, 50 million. They got over 110 mils, so they must have done something right. But anyway, we shall hopefully talk to, uh, to the owners of that particular company uh, maybe tomorrow on the Country Hour. Well, a major step in improving relations between Australia and China happened this week when the leaders of the two countries met in Bali. So will the meeting and the thawing of relations help producers of commodities like wine, barley, lobster, export hay and beef, which have all been locked out of China to varying degrees over the last few years? Warwick Long spoke to the CEO of the National Farmers Federation, Tony Ma, to find out what this could mean for Australian agriculture.
8: Look, I think it'll be encouraging, Warwick. I think, uh, you know, China's such a key market for Australian agricultural exports. They take about a quarter of what we produce, about total exports, a quarter of them go to China. So incredibly valuable and important market. And it's really encouraging that two leaders have got together. And we hope that it results in a rebuilding and a strengthening of the relationship.
7: Obviously, the the pictures and the symbolism of the speeches is important, but what do you think a realistic expectation is from a meeting like this about things like exports resuming? I think it was a
8: significant step that the Prime Minister specifically raised trade relations. So, you know, there's lots going on in the relationship and around the world, but for the Prime Minister to raise trade relations, you know, specifically on some of the agricultural products, obviously. But having said that, it will obviously take a while. And as long as it all continues to go in the right direction, and, you know, we look at strengthening and rebuilding and And enhancing the relationship, I think most farmers will be encouraged by uh, the meeting.
7: With uh, export bans or or tariffs in place on things like wine, lobster, barley, hay exports and and restrictions on some beef exporters as well still in place, uh, are those industries hurting? Are there particular industries desperate to see a resumption in trade?
8: Look, I think most industries, work would you know, look forward to stability in the market. I mean, the the disruptions that we've seen over the last couple of years have come from a range of areas. The stability and the certainty is what I think people are looking for. So, as long as we're moving, you know, in a positive di- direction, uh, the conversations are, are constructive and and positive. That will be the main thing. I think we're we're so lucky in Australia that you know Australian farmers produce some of the best food and fibre around the world. So while it takes some time to re-establish and rebuild new markets, we're well-placed to continue to diversify and, and put products into markets that you know are paying the right price and for the right conditions and those sorts of things. So yes, China is absolutely critical, but likewise, so is continuing to look at diversifying markets.
7: I guess what I'm trying to establish is how high on the list of importance is things like resuming the China trade in agriculture at the moment?
8: It's very high. And I think as uh, as I alluded to before, it's really encouraging that in the 30 minutes, you know, the Prime Minister has had with uh, his counterpart in China, that trade was raised specifically. Um, there's lots that they could and, and can talk about. Um, so, from a government perspective, from an industry perspective, I think the resumption and the strengthening of the agricultural trade between Australia and China looks to be at you know the, the top of the list, near the top of the list of of discussions, which I think is really encouraging.
7: What's more important to Australian farmers, an India free trade agreement or a resumption of the China trade for the commodities that are currently locked out?
8: Yeah, that's a really good question, Warwick. Um, it'll depend on. With the risk of sounding like a lawyer, it depends. I mean, there's there's commodities that uh, like seafood and wine who have been absolutely devastated by some of the restrictions and disruptions in the China market. There'll be other commodities that uh, see India as a you know a huge opportunity, as we know it is. You know, a billion people over there, growing um, domestic market, uh, their disposable income. So it'll it'll depend a little bit. But I would say the the more certainty, the more stability that we can have in global trade the better for Australian
7: farmers. We've had this meeting. What do you hope happens from here?
8: Well, I think there has been... So, you know, this meeting... Um the meetings that or discussions that uh, Foreign Minister Wong have had, I think what we'd like to see is a continuation. So it, it's not going to be solved. The, you know, the relationship isn't going to be totally repaired after one 32-minute meeting. So what we'd look to see is more discussions, more conversations, more engagement between the two countries. Obviously, industry has been talking to um, counterparts in in China for a long time, continues to. So that'll continue to build with you know, the encouraging signs from the two leaders. So I do see that it's um, a bit of a pathway, a bit of a journey. It's not going to be solved overnight,
1: but it's certainly an encouraging step. CEO of the National Farmers' Federation, Tony Ma, talking to Warwick long after the meeting between the Chinese President and the Australian Prime Minister. On the text line, Jane says, after that weather report, I am moving to Alice Springs. I might join you, Jane. Uh and Tiprat says, Hi Tony, home after ten days in Hobart, could not get any spuds from any supermarket in town. What's going on? Well, the rain is what's uh caused the problems. Uh they can't get onto the paddocks to pull the spuds out of the ground, so um the rain just keeps hanging around. So that's that's basically the problem. But uh, hopefully there'll be more spuds in the near future coming your way. Well, ram sales are underway across the state and this week the annual multi-breed commercial ram sale was held at Longford. It gives smaller breeders the chance to show local producers what they can offer.
13: These are the Charlotte Texel cross rams. OK, there we go. We've got plenty of money about these rams. Some of
4: over those. OK, there we go. $1,000, $1,900 anywhere. My name's Ian Morrison. I'm from Pisa at Cressy. I've just bought five rams, uh, a Suffolk and four Charolais.
14: What's your breeding program at the moment? Uh, what's what's your strategy? Well,
4: the Suffolk is we've just got, well, my daughter-in-law's got some pet Suffolks and we've got to buy a, purchase a Suffolk, every, different one every year. And the Charolais, we've only just been using them the last two years, but we have find their lambs are dressing very well and Suiting the market, so we just keep on with that for a while. And
14: they're fairly new to Tasmania. How are you finding them as a breed, and are they suited to your country?
4: Well, they seem to be. You know, they're, well, they're, we put them over ewe lambs themselves last year, and everything's lambed well, and everything's going well so far. You know, they nearly need web feet and galoshes or flippers at the present, but they're uh, getting around all right.
14: That has been a bit of a concern that, that some lambs might be a bit behind with putting on weight. What are you finding?
4: Yes and no, but the, the worst thing is if you put them in a paddock day after the paddock's black from where they've been walking around, but, but uh, other than that, no, they've been doing reasonably well.
14: Paul Catterall, you're from Wattle Ridge. Uh, you've got Paul Dorset's. Uh, Charolais. And Charolais, How do you feel the sale went?
15: Oh, look, it's a tough year. It's been a hard year for getting sheep ready, but really, um, like it, there was a lot of positivity in there. What makes it tough for selling them? There's a little bit of apprehension around about how things are going to go. Weather-related? Yeah, I think so. I think you know, the weather plays a part in people's minds, you know, like about what they're doing, what they think they're going to be able to do. It's been a tough year for stock across the board, everywhere to get them prepared. It's just been a wet year, So, but think of all the good things that are going to come out of that.
14: What are conditions like at your place? Are, are things starting to dry out? Are they still pretty damp?
15: No, um, we got pretty well um, bashed by the flood. We got a bit of river flat country and took a lot of fences and yes, it was a very aggressive flood this year and um, everything's just been soaked. Yeah, So just like most people are experiencing, it's it's just um, the sh- all the animals just need a bit of sun on their back and they'll be happy as can be because the grass will certainly
16: grow. Uh, David Bassett, uh have a property called Rose Hill which is on the eastern outskirts of Cressy.
14: And you sold pretty much all of your rams today?
16: I uh, sold them all except one which was uh, really pleasing.
14: Tell me a little bit about what you do with your rams or what sort of work has gone into Building up genetics and getting it to the point where you can sell them commercially?
16: Uh, we first purchased two rams from uh, Roseville Park in Dubbo and uh, five ewes from Denegate in Hamilton and in Victoria and we started crossing um, them over various other breeds but decided to go down the path of the pure ones and since then we've Bought another five ewes uh, from Hamilton and uh, various um, rams from around Australia. The present one is uh, Camley ram from uh, Warrnambool in Victoria.
14: You feel they're pretty suited to your conditions at Cressy?
16: Uh, we've been really surprised because in Britain they're uh, shedded sheep, and we wondered whether they'd survive in our conditions. But uh, they've proven to be very good during the dry periods, and uh, and they tolerate the cold quite well as as well. So so uh, we are, have been surprised at uh, how they ad- have adapted to our conditions. We've are on the banks of the Macquarie River. Fortunately, we are, we are higher on our side, but Pansanga, the other side, has been a lake for a lot of the year. Yeah,
14: and that, that's a challenge, isn't it, to try and find dry paddocks?
16: Uh, yes, it's, we've found that we've had to move them every couple of days, not because they ran out of grass, but because their feet brought up mud onto the grass and it was no longer palatable for them.
14: Greg Harris, you've been overseeing this ram sale today. Your first impressions, the market seems to be a little bit softer. Yeah, a little
17: bit softer and I think that's a bit par for the course this year. I think a lot of the good rams are selling well but it's a bit hard to move a lot of rams around this year.
14: What do you put it down to?
17: Um, Probably season and, you know, it's sort of getting a saturation. There's a lot of rams on the market this time of year, so just a little bit tougher than we thought the bottom end. A lot more go down, you know. They're really looking for the better rams and the better genetics and getting at the top end and, you know, the figures have got to all add up and, you know, and then they're just, yeah, they're not that much keener on the bottom end of the cheaper end of the rams now like there's probably plenty around so you know they've got a bit of choice.
14: Where would the bulk of these rams go in terms of um, property size that sort of thing?
17: Ah well yeah well please and all those are big operators and they've come every year and different ones so they're all central north of the state there's a few going south and yeah pretty well spread And there's a few down the northwest so yeah they're, they're spread. Pretty well round the place, yeah.
14: How are businesses doing in general in terms of um, lamb health, putting weight on... Getting ready for that uh, that drop that we'll you know we'll get to purchase in the next few months.
17: Yeah, this, the the season this year has been just that hard. Like it's just wet all through the winter. It's been too wet. You know, lambs just need sunshine. Any sheep does like to do at the minute. And it's, it's yeah that it'll come. It'll come. But we just yeah we just a little bit behind at the minute until it dries out and gets going.
1: Yeah, certainly are. Elders livestock agent Greg Harris sending that report from Larissa Smith on the multi breed commercial ram sale at Longford. Agents sold 30 of the 55 rams on offer an average price of $1,111. Well, good spring growth is happening across the state and many for many the paddocks are greener than they've been in years. It's keeping stock happy and farmers busy. James and Tani McShane own and operate Rotherwood, a 3,000 hectare grazing and forestry operation in the southern Midlands. Fiona Breen caught up with the couple to find out what's happening on farm.
3: I can't complain about the ability for grass to grow.
1: Yeah, I mean,
9: it's often dry here when I've been here in the past, but it's beautiful green rolling hills at the moment.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and we haven't had a failed season since uh, March 2020. The springs and the autumns, uh, it's just unprecedented to have them back-to-back like this. So, yeah, we're looking out on a lot of grass, more grass than what our animals can consume. So from that perspective, it's been been easy. However... (laughs) The lack of hot, dry periods in summer have caused some massive animal health issues with the sheep that have been really difficult to, to manage, whether it be yeah, worms or fertility-related issues or feet-related issues. And I, I know we're not the only ones there. So many people have just been tussling, especially with, with Intestinal worms through the last two winters, so
9: that requires a lot more management than uh, time with the flock, drenching, etc.
3: Yes, I'm sure drench uh, providers are smiling all the way to the bank.
9: <laughs> but in in terms of wool and in terms of um, growing some of your cattle, is that going well?
3: The cattle job is magnificent uh, at the moment. Of course, you need a fair bit of capital to to get into it. So for us, we buy in. Uh, trade cattle just yearling steers and then we put a few kilos on them and sell them after five or six months um, and that works really well for us uh, so far we've been able to buy and sell in the same sort of market and that market is is tremendous at the moment yeah buying in this year was was quite good and we've got some beautiful cattle eating a lot of beautiful grass
9: and how how's your
3: wool going uh, the wool job's good certainly less predictable the the market at the moment it's up and down all over the place like some other commodity markets i mean our general rule is we sell it when we've got it so uh, we just take whatever the price is generally when we go to sell it and that price has been been okay
9: Tony mcshane uh, how have you been going trying to get shearers because of course there's always crutching and there's shearing.
10: Yeah, that has been challenging. It's always been challenging, but especially so since the onset of COVID. Um, Shearing is usually okay, but crutching has been increasingly difficult. So we sold some lambs last year that that weren't crutched. So, I mean, that affects their saleability, um, who wants to buy them and the price. And then, you know, 2,000 sheep, James had to crutch himself this last season gone. So...
9: Oh my goodness, you, you didn't see him for a while then? No, a bit less than normal. What a job, 2,000 sheep by yourself crutching.
3: Oh yeah, well professional crutches do a lot more so <laughs> I'm not going to complain but it's not a job we're used to and you know I had to take a day off in between, you know, one day on, one day off because so much other things to manage at the same time.
9: So what's going to happen, do you think, with shearing? Are you talking to other farmers at all? Do you, do you have uh, any word out there about whether that might ease up a bit?
3: So I think uh, with the shearing and shed hand industry, uh, it's really important that we keep investing in in training, but also uh, being able to uh, promote the industry as, as a desirable career path. Um, I think there's a lot of emphasis on farmers being... Uh, willing to upgrade their equipment, um, upgrade their sheds to a point um, to to make the workplace more desirable and safer, which, uh, from what I've seen, so many farmers are uh, more than willing to do, whether it's upgrading to new uh, shearing plants or or making their catching pens um, more user-friendly for the shearers and crutches. And farmers have got to be willing to pay for, for, for good teams to come into their shed as well. Um, there's certainly...
9: A changing industry, and watch this space.
3: Yes, well, I sometimes go to sleep trying to invent a new uh, shearing machine, but um, <laughs> like other McShane's before me,
1: uh, yes. A new shearing machine is called a human. Uh, James and Tony McShane farming sheep on a southern Midlands property, talking there to Fiona Breen. Well, have you heard of Trench Foot? Turns out animals get it as well, and these soggy paddocks at the moment from weeks of rain are not great for livestock, as we've just been hearing from uh, some of the farmers there. Our reporter Meg Powell dropped in to see Jim Riley, the semi-retired vet from Forth, to talk all things wet feet. Uh, when I
18: first started looking up this, uh, to get a bit more info, I uh, consulted Professor Google and it took me straight to the First World War and trench foot with regard to wet feet because... Uh, Bacteria and fungus love moisture and warmth and soft feet and these feet become much more susceptible to infection and damage maybe by stones in a driveway and all species of animal including humans suffer from this, horses especially, cattle, sheep, uh, even pigs and in sheep especially merino and Dorpers, and particularly goats.
10: There we go. I was, I was wondering there what the relation was with humans and, and animals, but you're saying they get the same problem.
18: Any species of animal at all which uh, has persistently wet, uh, wet feet is going to suffer from uh, foot infections and, and lameness.
10: So in, in terms of all this rain that we've had recently, the paddocks are very wet and the animals are out there, what should farmers be looking out for?
18: Uh, looking out for lame cattle, particularly, and uh, um, and ensuring that they keep their feet as hard and as dry as possible. For instance, uh, it's a good idea for for farmers, dairy farmers, to uh, put uh, a mat of on under shelter, so when the cows walk out of the dairy, they uh, they get uh, f- uh, formalin on their feet, and that hardens them up. Uh, Merinos and... Did I say Merinos and Dorpers? No. Oh, well, Dorpers came from South Africa, and everybody said they were pretty free from uh, foot, foot problems, but that's not the case because they actually lived in the desert. <laughs> uh, Merino are pretty bad too. The uh, British breeds suffer less because they've, uh, they've had a very wet UK conditions for centuries and, uh, and they've uh, adapted by selection. Yes, uh, overgrown feet, wet feet, infected feet, uh, often antibiotics... But not all, not all cows are as susceptible as, um, as some are. Um, it differs between families in sheep and cows. One family will, obviously dairy cows, will have bad feet and, and pass it on to their heifers. And cattle that drink from dams, never a good idea. Yeah, Why I'll is that? will get it in the summertime too.
10: What's wrong with cattle drinking from dams?
18: Wet feet. Apart from that, um, not only wet feet, but... Uh, they muddy up the water and, uh, and make it a, make a big mess. What we do with uh, when treating them is uh, put a soft rope around their their legs and, and pull the foot up and, and look between the toes and uh, uh, take any objects such as small stones that are between them. And uh, if necessary, use antibiotics. It's not usually a herd problem unless in sheep. And yes, I have uh, turned a, a few mobs of sheep upside down in the cradle and trimmed their feet. And treated them with uh, with formalin or bluestone. If you're uh, if you're buying a mob of sheep, then uh, the best idea, because foot rot is so prevalent in Tassie, uh, the, the best idea is to um, put them in the wettest paddock you've got and observe them for a fortnight. And anything which has got uh, foot rot will show itself up rather quickly.
14: Ooh, and then what do you do?
1: <laughs> you, uh, you get rid of this, them. <laughs>
6: this
14: is where it gets grim.
1: <laughs> we better leave it there. That was fourth vet Jim Riley sharing some of the knowledge he's gained over about six decades of veterinary work with our reporter Meg Powell. Uh, don't forget to visit our ABC Rural page. Uh, plenty of great stories there. We'll have a story of uh, the sale of clues up on that page for you very shortly. And also our ABC Rural Facebook page as well. That is our program for today. Catch you after midday tomorrow.